Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. You can find that on page 922 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 33. I know we're repeating a verse that we looked at last week, but this is all one sermon together. Anyway, we're just breaking it into parts, so we're going to get a running start into our focus this morning, starting in verse 26. Now, it seems like every culture has its myths and its legends. Uh, the Greeks had Hercules, the Norse had tales of Odin and Thor, the Brits have Beowulf. We as Americans, well, we have superheroes. When people think of superheroes, we think of people who have extraordinary powers, who face extraordinary dangers, and save the day in extraordinary ways. But honestly, it's the weaknesses of those superheroes that really make them interesting. They all have a fatal flaw, something that maybe we can relate to, something that they have to face and rise against in order to overcome the bad guys. That, I think, is the real reason why people find them inspiring and interesting. It's not the superpower so much as it is the struggle. And I think that reflects something deep within the human soul, which realizes that not all is right within us. There's something that craves a Savior who can bring relief from the darkness. Now, there's a Speaking of superheroes, there's a scene in the movie Batman The Dark Knight where at the end of the movie, Batman, if you haven't seen this, it's been out for years. I'm sorry if this is spoiling. Uh, at the end of the movie, Batman has to go on the run from the police. And it's actually, it's kind of part of a cover-up. Batman has taken the blame for some killings that he did not commit in an effort to protect justice and to restore people's faith faith in the system, the justice system. So as he's being chased, you have this overhead voice of Commissioner Gordon explaining to his son, who had just been saved by Batman, that Batman is the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. So he says, so we'll hunt him, because he can take it, because he's not our hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight. It's a moving moment in the Batman series. Batman shows a certain real love for his city by willing to take the blame on himself to try and preserve peace. When others, other heroes failed, he didn't. And he let himself be chased for something he didn't do because that is what he saw that the city needed. But even though you come away from that movie admiring the sacrifice, admiring the strength, you also come away just totally dissatisfied with the situation because it's not true justice. And if we allow Gotham City to serve as a commentary on the human heart, we come away from that movie realizing how deeply we need to be saved by someone who is able to root out the darkness and the shadows that are in our very hearts. We, we need more than a dark night to chase. We need a king who is able to rescue us from the distortion of our own darkness, and a king who can satisfy true justice for us. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Here, we get more than a myth. We get more than a legend. We get good news about how God has provided us with a Savior that we need, who is not the hero we deserve. 
He has no fatal flaws, but He has embraced ours. He has secured justice for us through His own death and through the victory of His life. And it's in Him that we find grace that is greater than our sin. It's, it's in the light of His appearing that we find life and salvation from the darkness of our own souls. And so with that, let's read the good news together. If you will, please stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 13, starting verse 26 and reading through verse 33. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, this is the second part of the sermon that Paul preached in the synagogue that was in the city of Antioch in Pisidia. In the first part of this sermon, what we looked at last week, Paul announced to us that God's salvation had come. He drew our attention to the way that God has been at work in the history of the world to prepare the way for the salvation of his people through the work of Jesus Christ, his own son. Now, having taken us through that history, Paul arrives at the actual good news of how God worked through Christ to secure that salvation. Namely, we see, through his suffering on the cross. So, Understand that when Paul and Barnabas came to Antioch, Pisidia, they, they came preaching Christ crucified. They came preaching salvation through the cross of Christ. And as they did, they anticipated two big hurdles, two objections to this message, which needed to be addressed and explained. First, they, they needed to explain why Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Second, they needed to explain the scandal of the cross, namely how Jesus' death accomplished God's plan of salvation. To do this, we see that they went to the scripture itself, showing that it was the plan and the will of God to do this. So the main idea of this passage 
and the main idea of this sermon, set in the context of Paul sharing the gospel, is simply this. Our hope rests in a crucified Savior. Our hope rests in a crucified Savior. If you remove the cross, you have no gospel. You have not given the good news unless you have also given the news about Jesus' cross. And that is what we want to focus on this morning. The cross accomplishes three things. Three things that I want to draw your attention to this morning. It empties, first we see that it empties the hand of man of all power. Second, it exalts the arm of God to save his people. And third, the cross reveals Jesus as the son of love. So our points this morning, there are three points that we'll be having this morning, are simply to look first at the hand of the wicked. Second, we'll look at the arm of God. And third, we will see the son of love. And in doing these things, we will behold Christ rightly, our crucified king. So let's begin by looking at the hand of the wicked. Now, the flag of Northern Ireland, I don't know if you knew this, Ireland's actually split up into two. You have Southern and Northern. Northern Ireland is officially, the, the, the flag of Northern Ireland is officially the Union Jack, which is a standard for all of the United Kingdom. But actually, up until the 1950s, it had a different flag called the Ulster Banner. Now, the Ulster Banner is interesting for a number of reasons, particularly for the fact that at its very center, if you Google this, you will find a red hand cut off at the wrist. It's an old symbol with a number of different explanations, but my favorite is grounded in an old legend that there was a competition over the ownership of the land involving Northern Ireland where the first man to lay his hand on the province was to have rightful claim over it. And so the story goes that the warriors were racing each other to get to the land, and that as they drew close, one of them, realizing he wasn't going to win, cut his own hand off at the wrist and threw it over everyone else, winning the land for himself. People will do some incredible things for power, won't they? In the days of Jesus, the Jewish people were looking and longing for the coming of the promised Messiah, who they hoped would kick the Romans out of Israel and restore it to the glory that it had once had under King David. They were looking for an earthly kingdom. And while they searched the scriptures and they prayed for this coming deliverer, most of them did not recognize him when he arrived. In fact, they rejected him. Although they had eyes, they did not see. And although they had ears, they did not hear. And although they had the best and brightest theological minds among them, they did not recognize Jesus and his true identity. They did not understand that God himself was among them. I think that John sums it up pretty well in the opening of his gospel when he says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They did not welcome him in. 
In the opening words of this sermon, Paul had reminded the people in this synagogue about all that God had done for their forefathers. He reminded them of God's works of power, taking them through about how God had raised them up, had taken them out of Egypt to the land of promise, how he had delivered them, given them judges, provided them with a good king. He reminded them of God's promise spanning from Abraham to David, a promise to raise up an offspring who would be our Savior. And he announced to them that God had in fact kept that promise by bringing Jesus to be that Savior. In verse 26, Paul calls everyone who is listening to him saying, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. But the news of this salvation which Paul had come to share wasn't just that the Messiah had come. It was also a message about what the Messiah had done. And that brings us to verse 27, where he tells us, He tells his listeners about the way that the rulers and the people in Jerusalem had treated God's anointed one. First, he says that they did not recognize Jesus. They were blind to his true identity. Now, the prophet Isaiah foretold that the promised servant of the Lord would not stand out with any form of majesty or beauty that people should desire him. And we see that In the life of Christ, although Jesus was in fact born of the bloodline of David, although he was rightfully the king, he was not born in a palace. No, he did not live his life with the rich. Rather, he worked with his hands as a carpenter. He embraced our weakness. He knew hunger. He knew thirst. He knew fatigue. And even when he began his ministry... Some of his own disciples wondered what good could come from a backwater town like Nazareth. Unlike the rabbis of his day, Jesus called his disciples to himself. At that point, rabbis typically would go about their business and people would come and ask to be their disciples. Jesus called his disciples. And when he taught, he taught with authority. And and though people were amazed at all he said and what he did... His growing popularity put him at odds with the Jewish leadership. They hated him, partially out of jealousy, partially because he exposed their sin, and partially because the things that he said and did showed that he was more than a mere carpenter from up north. He called God his own father. He he said that he and the father were one. He did the works of God, in the power of God. And even though the Jewish leaders could not dispute the reality of what he was doing, and they could not resist his words, they hated him. And they were determined to destroy him. Paul tells us that the reason the Jewish leaders did not recognize Jesus was because they did not understand the utterances of the prophets, which is to say that they didn't understand what God had foretold by the prophets about him. It wasn't that they didn't have access to this. They, they read the scriptures and the words of the prophets every Sabbath, but they were blind to the fulfillment of those words. They, they were blind to Christ. And so Paul explains that they condemned Jesus. They gave the promised Messiah over 
into the hands of Gentiles. And though they did not find anything in him to warrant death, Paul says, they demanded that Pilate have him crucified. More than that, they worked and demanded that Jesus be killed by working the same crowds that had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem into a frenzy, threatening Pilate that he was no friend of Caesar if he left Jesus alive. Now, we, we know the story. Pilate caved under the pressure. Jesus was, in fact, crucified. And after he had died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb with his body secured by a detachment of soldiers standing at the entrance, ready to ward off anyone who might think to come and steal that body away. This is how Jerusalem received its rightful king. Wicked men killed the Son of God. Their, their violence knew no boundaries. While he prayed and interceded for them, even on the cross, they jeered and mocked him. While he sweat drops of blood in his earnestness to obey the Father, they spit on him and they beat him in the face with their fists. While he laid down his life for his flock, they tore the skin off his back. While they broke the law in this great miscarriage of justice, bearing false witness about him, he spoke only truth. While they drew straws for his clothes, he secured the inheritance of heaven for his people through the breaking of his own body. This is what the hand of man accomplished, the murder of God's beloved son. But for all the violence, for all the injustice on man's part, for all the pain and suffering, blood and gore, for all the resistance to the rightful king, Paul tells us that these people were inadvertently fulfilling the very purpose and plan of God. Notice what Paul says in verse 27. He says that although they did not recognize Jesus as the Christ, and although they did not understand the word of God that spoke about him, in everything they did to him, they were actually fulfilling them by condemning him. And then in verse 29, Paul says, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Calvin makes the point that the more violently the captains of the people sought to extinguish Christ, they did in very deed prove him to be the Christ. God allowed his son to be crucified by wicked men. He allowed the hand of man to prevail against his anointed one. Not only that, we are told that he sent his son into the world for this very purpose. As Jesus says in John 10, 14, verses 14 through 18, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life 
that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It it has been said that Jesus was so intent on doing and accomplishing this that when he created the world and sustained it by the word of his power, he made the very tree that would be the cross that he would hang on. The suffering of Christ on the cross fulfilled the will and the purpose of God. We read that in Isaiah 53. Christ laid down his life. He submitted himself into the hands of his enemies. But, just as with Joseph, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. The authority that these men wielded against Christ was given to them for this very purpose. And we read in Acts 4 that this was to do everything that God had predestined and purposed them to do so that the strength and the wisdom of man might be emptied completely and all glory might go to God and to God alone. You see, the scandal of the gospel is the offense of the cross. I don't know if you picked up on that in Paul's explanation, even of the way they took Christ down. Notice he emphasizes that they took him down from the tree. The law of Moses says that anyone hung on a tree is cursed. That curse was necessary. The manner of Jesus' death was necessary. It was spoken of beforehand. Because that is what Christ had come to do. To take the curse of sin on himself and to remove it from us. To break it. It was not an accident. It was the purpose of God. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. The people who should have recognized him, who should have worshipped him, were the very people who put him to death. But the cross of Christ had a purpose. It is, in fact, the occasion of Jesus' exaltation. If we go to the book of Revelation, you will find him exalted, not just as the Lamb of God, but as the Lamb of God who was slain. Our Lord is not exalted in spite of the cross. He is exalted, in fact, through the cross working through what the world has despised and despises as foolishness and weakness. God has shown the surpassing wisdom of His grace. The mystery revealed in the gospel that in Christ a sacrifice has been made for sin once and for all that takes our guilt away. And as such, all occasion of our boasting brings us to God. And our boast becomes the cross. And now we come to God not as His enemies, but as His children. And through Christ we come to a crucified King. Paul never tried, in his preaching of the gospel, all over the empire, wherever he was, he never tried to cover up the cross of Christ. And after all, I mean, how could he? In Romans 1, 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. We don't think about the gospel as something you should be ashamed about. 
except when we remember that we are proclaiming salvation in a crucified Christ. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We have not preached the gospel unless we have preached the cross of Jesus. Because it's there that the power and the wisdom of God triumphs, where it removes all human boasting. And it's in the weakness of the cross that the power of Christ and his sacrifice is shown for us in its blazing glory. The Jews who first heard this message most certainly would have been scandalized by it. Paul tells the church in Corinth that the message of the cross is foolishness to the Jews and weakness to the Gentiles. But when we see how God worked to fulfill his word through the cross of Christ, through that scandal, when we see how necessary the cross is, then we can understand the true power of it. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He goes on to say that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord it is ironic to think that the man who threw his hand to try and get land for himself lost power in himself took on weakness to try and get some sort of strength for himself in Christ we acknowledge that we are not limbless but that we are dead and that he has made us alive through his death and resurrection. And through him we have received a far greater inheritance than a plot of land on an island in the north. The cross of Christ empties the hand of man of all power and it makes us rely not on ourselves but on the sufferings of the Son of God for us. It makes us trust in the power of God completely. It makes us trust in a crucified king who loved us and gave himself for us that we might have life in him. It makes us consider the power, the strength of the arm of the Lord, which is our next point here. We can never exhaust the significance of the cross. We need to preach the cross to ourselves daily. At the same time, we see the effect of Jesus' rejection of his suffering and his death, specifically in his victory over the grave. The reason that we know the cross was sufficient, that the power of God triumphed, that the sacrifice was in fact enough, that it was effective, is because Jesus didn't remain in the grave. Look at verse 30. But God, just soak in that for a second. Man did his worst. But God raised him from the dead. You can feel the echoes of 1 Corinthians 15, can't you? 
Jesus died for sin, but he did not remain dead. Every other Savior proclaimed in our world today is dead and dead. Jesus is alive. With the same authority that Jesus had received from his Father to lay his life down, Jesus took his life back up again. By giving his life as a ransom for us, he broke death. Our sin, which was laid on him, was paid. The the curse of that sin was broken. Justice was fulfilled and satisfied. God's wrath had been met. The cup had been drained. And the lamb who was slain rose in victory over his enemies and over the power of the devil. Praise God. That is the best news ever. That is what makes the gospel the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus is what secures our hope in a crucified king. The the cross is not the end. Jesus didn't die as a moral lesson to you. He died as an effective sacrifice. He paid for our sins on the cross, but he also, he rose in victory over the grave. His victory is our victory. His life is our life. He rules and he reigns even now, not as only as the king who was slain for his people, but as the king who was raised for his people. The arm of the Lord showed its power, not only in the way that it directed the hand of man to accomplish what God had purposed, but in triumphing over the power of man, overcoming death. In John 11, Jesus told his beloved friend Martha, after she had lost her brother to a terrible sickness, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? Come on, let's be Baptist for a second. Do you believe that? Yes. That is a tremendous thing for Jesus to say. Jesus is not the only prophet who raised the dead. Elisha, Paul, They both prayed to God and certain people came back to life. But no one has ever claimed to be the resurrection and the life. Oh no. No one else has ever claimed authority to be able to lay their life down and to be able to take it back up again. That is what makes Jesus' statement to Martha so important. That is what makes Jesus' act to raise Lazarus from the dead so important. The reason we can trust that this is true, that Jesus is in fact the resurrection and the life, is because he died and because he rose again. He is the resurrection and the life, and he gives life to those who trust in him. There were two major roadblocks lying in the path of faith as Paul preached this message in the synagogue the rejection of Jesus and the death of Jesus. By showing that Jesus had to suffer to fulfill the scriptures, that he had to be rejected to fulfill what God had said, and by showing that God had raised Jesus from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, those two roadblocks were completely demolished. 
Jesus had overcome the power of death. And in verse 31, Paul reports that for many days, Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. He says that they were witnesses. They testified to his resurrection. They were living proof. This was not a vision they had one night. This is not the spirit of resurrection. No, it was the reality of resurrection. Thomas, we are told, had uh, against after he had made bold statements and then didn't want to do it, Jesus made him put his hand in his wounds so that he would know, I'm not a spirit. I'm here in my body. I have defeated death. Not the concept of death. I have defeated death itself. These were called to be witnesses of his resurrection, living proof of what they had then been called to share with others, what we have been called to share with others. The scandal of the gospel is as real today as it was in Paul's day. Ellie and I, we were just at the Ligonier Conference where the theme was standing firm. There's a need to stand firm because the world hates the gospel. It hates what it says about God. It hates what it says about us. It hates what it says about how we are saved. Because it still lies in the, in the power of Satan. He's still at work. Embracing the scandal of the gospel, God has called us to call others to put their faith in a crucified king. Because it's through that crucified king who overcame death that we are saved. We are calling people to turn from their sin and to turn to God. That is what repentance is. We are telling people to let go of their own works, to cling to Christ and to Christ alone. That is not a popular message. The scandal is still there. The cross still looks foolish to those who are perishing. But the arm of the Lord is not too short. And we have received a commission from our King with a promise that He will be with us always. And that all authority has been given to Him. That He holds the keys to death and Hades and that He has vanquished them. Jesus isn't the hero we deserve. We deserve God's wrath. But he is the Savior we need because it's only through faith that we can be saved by him. So friends, don't lose your enthusiasm for the gospel and don't give in to that temptation to just gloss over the scandal of the cross. Embrace it. And as you do, as you think about how that affects the way you speak to others, also think about yourself. Don't make peace with your sin. Jesus died for that sin because it would be lethal for you. The arm of the Lord that overcame death, overcame death for you. And the arm of the Lord will go with you to make his gospel bear fruit. So trust in the arm of the Lord. Nothing can stop this. And that brings us finally to consider face of our Savior, the Son of Love. In verse 32, we hear Paul state his and Barnabas' purpose, the reason they had traveled hundreds of miles to be with these brothers and sisters. He says, 
And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. You see the significance of the resurrection there? The promises aren't fulfilled. Jesus is still in the grave. But because he raised Jesus, the promises are fulfilled. And then he goes to show this. He takes us to the second psalm which says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, Paul goes on here, and I'm just cutting him off here a little prematurely because he just goes down the rabbit hole of Jesus' resurrection and how that connects to God's covenant with David and his kingship and his sonship with David. We're going to go into that next week. I don't have time yet. The main thing I want to close with this morning, though, is to to show you the relationship of Jesus' resurrection and how it reflects on Jesus' relationship with God the Father. Paul and Barnabas had brought good news to everyone who heard this message, that God kept the promise to their fathers. He had done this by raising Jesus. Obviously, as we read this, we know Paul is talking about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but I also think he has Jesus' exaltation in mind here as well. Jesus didn't remain on earth. No, he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he works as our high priest interceding for us. This paved the way for the Holy Spirit to come and to dwell in believers, which is another aspect of the promise that God gave through the prophets. I mean, think about the prophet Joel and the prophet Amos and, and how that is fulfilled. Peter shows that, outlines that for us in Acts 2. But as Paul brings up the way that God had fulfilled this promise, we see him taking us to Psalm 2, specifically verse 7, which says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, there's a lot of deep things we could unpack here, and I'm not going to be able to unpack all of that. But what I want you to see here, Psalm 2, first and foremost, you need to read Psalm 2 as the kingly psalm that it is. It is a psalm which celebrates and asserts God's sovereignty over the world. While the world, Brad read this for us earlier. While the world, while the nations, while the kings rage, God looks at them and laughs because his sovereignty cannot be touched. It also, the psalm ascribes glory, not just to God, but also to the king of his anointing. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalmist says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten of you, begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. As you read that, do you not hear Matthew 28, 18 through 20? You know, I hear the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. The psalmist goes on, but you get the picture. This anointed king, appointed by God, has a global sovereignty, and he deserves global fame. The world and all that is in it is his. But more than that, this is not just, this is not just an emperor. This, this king, God calls his son. I want you to fast forward many years later to John the Baptist. John got his name 
from the way that he prepared Israel for Jesus' coming, calling Israel to repentance, announcing to them that the kingdom of God was near. When, when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, John looks at Jesus and says, no, 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 I need to be baptized by you. You're, you're the guy that I've been telling people, I can't even, I'm not even worthy to unstrap your sandal. And Jesus looks at John and says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You think about the mission Jesus came. What was it? It was to secure righteousness and salvation for his people. Jesus didn't come to be baptized because he had some sin he needed repentance of. No, he came to be baptized as a picture of the way in which he had come to take the sins and the guilt of his people upon himself and in so doing to go through the death that we deserve not just the physical suffering but to drain dry God's wrath and in so doing to defeat the curse of sin which is death through his resurrection that is what Jesus meant when he looked at John. He said, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He came to fulfill righteousness for us. The gospel writers tell us that when Jesus had come up out of the water, immediately the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him, while a voice from heaven declared, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You want to hear the heart of the Father? That's it. That is the heart of God for his Son. In the Bible, sonship has a depth of meaning that goes beyond simply someone being born to someone. Sonship meant that you imbibe the character and the attributes of someone. A true son is the reflection of their father, and a true son receives the blessing of heirship. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father was so pleased with his son that he rended the heavens and declared with public pleasure, this is my son. For eternity, they had been in fellowship. And now we get a view into that pleasure and love and joy. That is a statement that says something. Not just about what Jesus had done by going to be baptized. Something about Jesus' divine nature. Something about his work. A work that took him to the cross and which culminated in the resurrection. A work which makes it possible for sinners such as you and I not just to be meh, forgiven, dismissed, everything's good, go be a servant. No, to be children of God in him. That's the depth of God's riches for you. He doesn't just set you free from sin. He makes you his son. And ladies, that includes you. You need sonship, okay? Because sonship means heirship. The point Paul is making by bringing this psalm up is the fact of, the God, of God the Father's pleasure in the work of God the Son. 
a work that set apart for him that was set apart for him before the world had even been set into motion Ephesians 1 and 2 this is a work that secures our salvation and our hope that's why we can look at the gospel and we can look at how far we fall short of God's glory and the devil can stand there and accuse us and we can say you are right my sin is great but my savior is greater and now God is my father we were enemies And he's made me not only his friend, but his child. It's it's a work that secures our salvation and our hope because in it, God's love has been caught up for us to see his eternal love in his son. There are some who have this terrible idea that God the Father is somehow distant from us. And that Jesus, as God's Son, goes to the cross of his own accord in some effort to pacify through the cross his grumpy father. And there's a popular notion among many Christians to think that God the Father is angry and judgmental while Jesus is loving. The image of God is, that image of God is wrong. It is so far from what we see in the scriptures. What the scriptures show us is that the love that Jesus has for us, the love that so many are so quick to affirm and claim, that that is a love that originates in the heart of the Father, that is reflected in the life of the Son because of His relationship with the Father. The Father, we're told, John 3.16, God sent His Son. He sent that Son, and the Son went in love And because he came, the promise of our salvation stands. We live secure in the lifeblood of the beloved Son. The relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son is one of eternal beauty and abiding love. It is a joy that can only be described as blinding light. You want to see the glory of God. It's always blinding light. In that announcement that God made on the banks of the Jordan River, as the Son showed His commitment to do the will of His Father, yoking Himself to us as the second and last Adam, and as the world heard the voice of the Father say, This is my Son, my beloved Son. My pleasure rests on Him. And then we come to John 17, and we see Jesus making us understand that it was this relationship of love and affection and harmony that is now given to us, that we enter into now with God through Him. We see the richness of what has been purchased for us. As the Son of God, not only is Jesus able to provide atonement for our sin, not only is He able to make us justified in the sight of God, but He brings us into a depth of relationship with God that we could never have otherwise had. In Christ, we are sons of God. And as sons, we are heirs with Christ of the riches of heaven and the pleasure of of our heavenly Father, equipped with the Spirit who in our hearts causes us to cry, Abba, Father, to the star breather. The 
Good, the gospel is good news. It is good news of salvation, which we have by faith in a crucified king. Not just any king, but the king of God's appointment, his own beloved son. And because he stands, so does our hope. Let's pray.